Back in 2003, I was privileged to enter into a discipleship relationship, really an accountability relationship with a young man that I'll call James. James and I, well, would meet together on a regular basis. I was new to church ministry, so sometimes he'd come meet me in my office, and sometimes we'd go for a little hike together or go get a meal. Oftentimes we would memorize scripture together, or we would read books of the Bible together and ask each other questions about what's going on in life. And we would ask each other the hard questions. We would get real with each other. I'd say to James, I know you've been struggling with lust. How you doing in that area? Are you honoring ladies with your eyes, honoring God with your eyes? He'd say, Adrian, I know that you have a tendency to flap your lips on the basketball court. How you doing in that area? You keeping it shut, Adrian. And we go back and forth, and it was a great discipleship, accountability relationship. We had that for some time before he moved out of the country. We lost touch as he moved to a couple different places, and then Two years ago, I was, I was encouraged, I was excited to see his name pop up on social media as he asked to be my friend on a social media page, and we were able to reconnect, and as we reconnect, I was kind of jazzed to see how he was doing, but as I got to know him once again and learn about what was going on in his life, I quickly came to learn that he was now working as an advocate for a Muslim group in Washington, D.C., And he believed basically now that these two religions are more or less the same. And indeed, the different religions of the world are more or less the same. And this man who I knew, who I kind of discipled with, no longer was following Christ on Christ's terms. Fast forward a few years, another gentleman by the name of We'll call him Michael. 2007, I'm going to seminary at Denver Seminary, and he rings me, and he was an acquaintance from college, so in between seminary classes, he asked if I would meet with him on one or two occasions to answer some questions that he was asking about spiritual things. And so in between my Old Testament and New Testament class, I met him at his place of business in South Denver. His place of business was a liquor store. That's interesting, talking about Jesus in a liquor store. As I'm talking well with this young man about what it means to follow Christ, but I'm willing to go just about anywhere to talk with someone about what it is to follow Christ. And so we're having conversations about that, and he explains to me that he's now engaged to be married, and and his fiance is a Christian. And he said, well, what am I to do with this? And he's kind of pressing in, and he's asking, would you officiate our wedding? And I press back, and I say, you know what? Marriage is pretty tough as it is. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Marriage is pretty tough as it is. It's going to be really, really hard if you disagree on religious convictions. And I'll never forget his response. Michael turned to me, and he said, well, back when I was 10, I put a stick in the campfire at a church gathering, and you know, as they say, I made a decision for Christ, so once saved, always saved. You know As they say, once saved, always saved. Right, Adrian? Well, if you've been around faith for a while, I'm sure you've heard similar stories that you could tell. What do you do with those stories? Are James and Michael Christians who have backslidden but still belong to God? Are they young men who have revoked 
Their belief in Christ revoked their salvation, so to speak. Were they never Christians in the first place? I'm sure you've asked these questions related to people that you have known. You know that I love you. That's always a warning when someone says that, right? I pray that you know that I love you. Every person in this room matters deeply to me, matters deeply to God. I love you. Whether you're a skeptic today, you're a seeker today, whether you're a believer, whether you're a disciple today, my hope, my passion is that you move a step toward the God who loves you and is drawing you to himself. And that we do that as we endure a couple really, really challenging warnings from the book of Hebrews. There's this repeated theme in the book of Hebrews that basically goes like this. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Okay, five different times the book of Hebrews gives warnings to the first century Jewish Christian audience. Five different times though, there are warnings. As you turn in your Bible or in your phone to Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to look at two of those different warnings. You'll find the book of Hebrews in the back of the Bible. If you get to Revelation or First or Second Peter or the letters of John or James, you've gone a little bit too far. Just go back a little bit more, about 90% through your Bible. The book of Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 6, we're going to look at those this morning. And we're going to reference a couple of the other warnings in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 2. But spend most of our time here in Hebrews 3 and 6. Asking, word of God speak. Word of God, you please speak to us. Hebrews 3, starting at verse 15, says this. Today, if you hear his voice, that is God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. So, again, this is a reference to those ancient Hebrews from about 1400 B.C. who were given this exodus from Egypt in that time of slavery when God miraculously intervened and released Israel from their slavery in Egypt. They're now wandering for 40 years because of their perpetual disobedience to God and their perpetual unbelief. And the warning that the author of Hebrews gives here is, do not be like your forefathers. Take a note from their misexample. Because they were God's chosen people. But it indicates that actually, by their unbelief, that some of them weren't. As a whole, they were intended to be God's chosen people, but some of them did not believe. And so they never got to enter God's rest. They were the kind of people that would say, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a Jew, I belong to God, I can do what I want to do. The kind of people who would say, yeah, I'm a good American. Of course I'm a Christian. But that's it. Or my mom and dad, 
go to church, and so I go to church with them from time to time. I go from time to time, but I've never actually really surrendered my heart to the living God. I've never actually really repented to the living God. These are people who look the part, but they haven't given their heart. Let me say that again. People who look the part of a Christian, but have not actually given their heart. Look forward to Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll see another example here. Hebrews 6, starting at verse 4. This one's even more challenging. It is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Well, hello. I mean, this is quite a warning, isn't it? What do we do with this? And we've just come off of a series in which we've looked at Romans 7 and 8 for six weeks in which we culminated with a message at the end of Romans 8 in which we, we noted nothing shall condemn you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and, and nothing can separate you, nothing can separate me from the love of God, neither hardship nor famine nor danger nor peril nor sword, neither the highest mountain nor the deepest sea, neither life nor death or angels or demons, none of that can ever separate us from the love of God Revealed in Christ Jesus, right, Adrian? Right? So, so, so what are you saying here, Adrian? What, what is this saying? Is this saying now that, that my disobedience, that my sinful activity can separate me from the love of God? Which one is it? Well, here's a big thought that you got to be sure you hold on to when you leave today. The big thought is this. There is no failure that can separate you from the love of God except perpetual unbelief. Let me say that again. There is no failure that can separate you from the love of God except the hard-hearted decision to live in perpetual unbelief before one's maker. To kind of shake one's fist at his maker and say, I'm going to do what I want. I will be on the throne of my life. This is what is meant by blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that we see at other places in the scriptures. It's not an accidental slip. It's not a curse word. It's not even taking the Lord's name in vain, though of course you don't want to do that. But if you've done that, you simply repent and God forgives. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this perpetual state of unbelief saying, I'm going to shake my fist at my maker. Now these passages, especially Hebrews 6, are among the most difficult and, and even fuzzy passages to interpret in all of the Bible. Well-meaning Christians have understood them in a variety of ways over the centuries. I can't address all of the different ways these passages have been uh, understood, but let me share with you two of the most popular ways that these passages have been understood across the centuries. Some have said that those who have fallen away from the faith were once genuine Christians. They were actually saved. They had the Holy Spirit. But then they revoked their salvation, as it were. The word would be apostasy. They believed in Christ, then they turned their back on Christ, 
They disbelieve in Christ. They have apostatized. They have rejected their faith. And so God, according to this view, being a gentleman, says, okay, have it your way. You want none of me, you'll get none of me. Okay, that, 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 that's one view. Some people have sometimes applied the label to this view of these people believe you can lose your salvation. That's actually a misnomer. Theologians who propose this view do not believe that people lose their salvation as someone loses their keys, okay? No, no one is saying that. They're saying that God being a gentleman would say, okay, you want to revoke your salvation, you want to commit apostasy, God says, all right, you want none of me, you will get none of me either for this life or for the life to come. Others argue that these are men and women who seemed like genuine Christians, but in fact, they were not. They were not. They looked the part, they attended church from time to time, they took communion, they raised their hands, they worshiped God as it were, they attended life group, they were good Americans, but they never gave their heart. They looked like genuine Christians, but they never actually were genuine Christians. So you look at someone like Michael or someone like James though, that I began with, that, 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 that perhaps these are people who, who participated in some Christian activity, but, but never actually gave their hearts to the living God. And folks who line up on this side of the issue would point to a passage like Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, to cite just one example. A number of different examples could be cited, but Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantor of your inheritance in Christ. Now the seal refers to the king's signet ring. The king would place his signet ring on wax, and he would say that's the king's signet ring. No one can remove that wax because the king placed his hand on it. And those who line up on this side well, would say, no, those folks could never even revoke their salvation. God will persevere them until the very end. Well, how do you reconcile these? When it seems like there could be some scriptural support for either and both views. How do you reconcile the people that you and I have both known? Like Michael and James, who seem to be Christians, but now demonstrate no spiritual fruit at all. And sometimes not even any interest in spiritual things. Let me give a few words of caution. If you have these discussions with people who disagree, I would encourage you to realize that black and white answers are not to be found on this. There's a level of humility that one needs to bring to the table when we have these kinds of conversations. We need to understand that the early church fathers disagreed on this. Reformation leaders disagreed on this. There's been disagreement on these issues across the centuries. So a bit of humility on our part is necessary when you look at different passages that seem to, at times, be suggesting, at least on face value of things, to be indicating two different things. We have to also have to understand that if they seem contradictory, the problem is with us, not with God. Okay? Uh, God will one time make everything clear to us, even though it's not completely clear to us today. 
Let me just share with you my own conviction on this issue and on this very controversial topic. You look again at Hebrews chapter 6, though, that you'll see on the screen. Let's put that back up there. Let me point out just a couple lines here. It says there in verses 4 through 6, they have tasted the heavenly gift. You might underline, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted it. I think what's gone on here is these are people who have come into community and they have tasted some of the brilliance of community. They've tasted some of the beauty of the gift of the Holy Spirit by virtue of being a part of real Christian community. They've maybe even repented of some of their sins. They've maybe seen God work in some ways and they've been amazed by it. They've tasted, they've sampled a little bit of it but they never actually gave their hearts. They never actually were genuine Christians in the first place. Now the danger is, the reason though that it says the beginning of that passage, it's impossible for them to come back is this. I don't think that God gives you only one chance to respond to the message of Christ. I know that I personally need to hear the message of Christ a number of times before I responded, and probably many of you did as well. But the impossibility is this, and the great warning is this. There are people who come to church week in and week out who listen to the message and let it go in one ear and out the other. There are people who get inoculated to the message over time thinking to themselves, that's fine and good, but that's for someone else, not so much for me. And the danger is, is if you hear that again and again and again, eventually your response to spiritual things can get cauterized so that you're not even able to respond. You've ignored it so long that your heart has gotten hard to spiritual things such that it's in effect impossible to respond to the message of God even as you are gathered with God's people week in and week out. Woo! quiet in here. That's a warning. That's a warning to those who would say, I am a Christian by virtue of my birth. No. You must respond to the invitation of Christ. Now as we have these conversations well, with people who disagree, it's important that we maintain humility, understanding that different people have held different positions on this controversial issue. Another word of caution is this. Some of us get very anxious about whether we have lost our salvation, if we have committed some sin. No good-thinking theologian is saying that. Okay, you don't lose your salvation as you lose your keys. Just as you don't gain your salvation by the good things you do, but it's by the grace of God, so also you don't lose your salvation by some bad thing that you do. I would argue again that you can't even lose your salvation. You can't even revoke your salvation. But even those who said you could revoke your salvation, none of them are saying that you're losing it by something bad that you've done. So ultimately, though, this can be liberating for those of us who, like me, have a very hyperactive conscience and move about through life constantly being anxious. Might God reject me for that flippant word that I just said. No, no he wouldn't do that. You didn't gain your salvation by the good things you do and you don't lose your salvation by the bad things though that you do. Moreover, when we think about our friends and family members who are kind of wandering, it gives us a little bit of liberty here 
that God will continue to go after them, and it's not ultimately our job to determine whether they're Christians or not. We can trust in a good God to keep bringing them to himself. And we don't have to be constantly anxious because it's not our job to determine who is on one side of the line and who is on the other side of the line. Instead, what we do if we have prodigals in our family or friends who have wandered is our responsibility is not to worry. Our, our responsibility is to do what? It's to pray. It's to go back after them. It's to point them once again to the love of God, to be patient and to encourage them to come back to the kindness of God. Now, the net, of folk, the net effect of all of this in this centuries-wide debate between those who say that one could revoke her salvation and those who say, no, they can't even revoke their salvation. There will be a perseverance of the saints. The net effect is the following. Both sides and all Scripture says the same thing, that if someone like Michael thinks he can rely on throwing his stick in a fire at a camp and making a choice for Jesus when he was 10 years old and live like hell until he's 80 years old and then expect to go to heaven, that person is fooling himself. The net effect on either side of this controversy is that person simply is not a Christian. So be warned. Don't try to look the part. My friends, in love, give God your full heart. We don't look the part, we give to God our full heart. Now that's a lot of theology, that's a lot of deep stuff. Again, it's exceedingly quiet in here today. <laughs> I'm sure it is in the venue as well. Let's look at a little bit of application. What difference does this make for those who are Christians today? Or maybe you'd be convicted today that you're not actually a Christian. What are the applications? Let me give you three steps to guarding yourself spiritually wherever you are today. First, fight against apathy. Fight against apathy in the spiritual life. Do all that you can to fight against sluggishness in the spiritual life. Look at Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. It says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the very end. The same earnestness. So that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We're gonna see a consistent theme as we go through the book of Hebrews this summer earnestness with faith strive to enter the rest of god keep yourself in spiritual community strive for the things of god there is a fight that we need to engage if we want to maintain a spiritual health it strikes me that we live in the country right now with the greatest comforts more entertainment than any place in the world at any time in human history. Is that safe to say? More entertainment, more comfort than at any time in human history. Now comfort can be a great blessing to us, but can also be a great curse to us spiritually. Isn't that right? It can be, our great, it can be a great blessing and it can be our greatest spiritual curse. I was listening to the comedian Louis C.K. last week, and he explains, if you look around, everything is amazing, but nobody is happy. 
Have you noticed? Everything is amazing. Everywhere you look, there's so much entertainment. There's so much comfort. There's so many great things all around. But nobody is happy because too much comfort becomes a curse for us. Consider the sheer, the sheer volume of the number of comforts, the number of entertainment options that are at our disposal on a day-in and day-out basis. I went on Amazon not too long ago to purchase fluff for one of my boys, this little thing, a fidget spinner, I just heard someone say. You seen one of these? They are not allowed in children's ministry. They are not allowed. But they are allowed on the stage, though, this morning. Okay, a fidget spinner. I, lo- I looked up one of these, not for myself, but for my boy. And uh, I said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll buy one of those. I say, it's only five bucks. I might as well buy two, right? One is not enough. They can't share. They each need their own, of course. Okay, so I buy two, and then as I'm scrolling around, I notice, oh, there's a new pair of sunglasses that I like. I already have a, sun, a pair of sunglasses. Why not have another pair of sunglasses? Okay, I order all those, all well and good, until they do not show up on my doorstep within two days. Then my boys and I, ooh, we are ticked. We better contact Amazon about this. What's taking so long? Someone has infringed upon my comforts. Some of you don't even need to go on the computer to do that. You just say, Alexa, order me a fidget spinner. No, make it two. And a pair of sunglasses while, while you're at it. Okay. I, I mean, we live it. Isn't it amazing the amount of comfort we have? Some of you binge watch on Netflix. Not one show but one season of a show in a single night. And it's all good until that black screen comes up and it says buffering. Then you're praying against that demon of buffering in the TV screen. Buffering, get out of there. Help me, God, I can't believe I have to wait for this buffering thing. I I mean, we live in this age with constant comfort, constant entertainment. And here's the warning. Too much of a good thing becomes a really, really bad thing. Constant entertainment yields apathy to the soul. When we're constantly entertained, we don't care that much about sitting and listening to the word of God. We're constantly entertained. We don't have that much energy for deep conversation about real spiritual things. We're constantly entertained. Do we ever fall to our knees and pray for even 30 minutes? No, none of those things actually live in a world of constant entertainment. Comfort is simultaneously, you got this from Craig Rochelle, Pastor Craig Rochelle, it is simultaneously one of our greatest blessings and one of our greatest curses. So, what will you do to fight against constant comfort? Have that conversation, well, with your spouse this week. Have that conversation well with your life group this week. How do I fight against this tendency to constantly be comforted by things? Because constant comfort, constant entertainment leads to spiritual apathy. You know, some have called us the apathetic generation. Others have called us the meh generation. Whatever. What are you excited about? Eh. What are you passionate about? What lights your fire? Eh. Man, I don't want to live like that. Do you? No. So we fight against some of this. We fight against apathy. So we fight for our spiritual lives. Second, we fight for Christian community. 
Do all that you can to fight for Christian community. Hebrews 10.31 gives another warning. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And then right before that warning, Hebrews 10 says this, let us, ne- let, let us not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Let's, let's spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And all the more, as we see the day of the Lord approaching, let us spur each other on. As a cowboy on his cowboy boot has a spur to point the horse in the right direction, so we have to have other people in our lives spurring us in the right direction toward Christ. That's why these two are sandwiched together. You see, it's a terrible and awful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, and it's really easy to fall in the hands of the living God and not be living a holy life when we are neglecting the habit of meeting together. That's why these two are sandwiched together. So, we have to encourage ourselves. We have to choose. We have to commit to keep going to our life group, even when it gets a little boring at times. Keep attending. Commit to it. Pray for each other. Encourage each other. It's got to be more than coffee and pie as well. We, we got to get together with each other and ask each other the hard questions and pray for one another and get into a study. And I was talking to a friend at church though this week, and he shared with me that his life group, they continue to meet on a weekly basis, but they have eight kids under the age of five years old without a babysitter. Woo! It's going to be hard to have a study in that, isn't it? So Pastor John Watson wisely told this man, it's okay if you can't get a study in every time. Pray for each other. Encourage each other. With eight kids under five, it's a win that you're even to get, getting together. Well done. That's such good wisdom from Pastor John. That's true for us. We have to keep meeting together. Uh, Pastor John also shared this wonderful story um, about a new life group that we have, a starter life group, and it meets together on a weekly basis, and he sent me this. I visited Dave Malone's men's starter group a few weeks ago at Perkins, and they're meeting in this restaurant, and I saw our friend Angel Delgado there, who recently got baptized, and it turns out that Dave gives him a ride each and every week since Angel does not have transportation, t- transportation of his own to get to Perkins. Also, the other men who attended the group went out of their way to welcome Angel, even though his background is so drastically different than his. You see, that speaks value to him. You matter, and we will go out of our way to get you and get you into community. We will be inconvenienced because your community is really important to us. We will keep meeting together and spurring each other on toward love and good deeds because you need it, and guess what? We need it. And we need you. We need you. Fight for this. We fight for Christian community, meeting together. I tell you what, amongst the people that I know who have drifted far from the faith, who no longer call themselves Christians today, a common denominator amongst all of them was they quit on spiritual community. They stopped meeting together with other Christians and they thought that they could do it on their own. And they were wrong. Third and finally, fight for time with God each and every day. Let me give you one final warning from Hebrews chapter two and then we'll pray. Hebrews two verse one says, we must pay much closer attention, underline attention, much closer attention to what we have heard 
lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So pay much closer attention. We say this a lot, but 15 minutes per day. 15 minutes alone with God each and every day. Be creative with it. Sometimes it's listening to the Bible on your phone. Sometimes it's reading the scriptures, one chapter a day. Sometimes it's, it's going into your prayer closet or going on a walk well with your spouse and turn that walk into a prayer time. You, you can be creative. There's so many different ways to do this. It's writing your journal. It's taking longer periods of time of so- solitude and silence to be alone well with the living God. You think of the little daughter who wants to be with her father. It's not so much what they do together. It's that she delights to be in the father's presence. And so it is with us that we delight to be in the father's presence. But in the midst of a world full of comfort and full of entertainment, we need practice to stay in the father's presence, delighting to be with him, not neglecting so great a salvation. Listen to the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Not if we resist it. Not if we reject it. Not if we despise it. Not if we oppose it. But if we neglect it. If a man is in a business, it is not necessary that he should commit forgery in order to fail. He can fail by simply neglecting his business. If a man is sick, he need not commit suicide by taking poison. He can do it just as surely by neglecting to take the proper medications. So it is in the things of God. Neglect is as ruinous as distinct and open opposition. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Friends, that was written in 1882. And apparently the Hebrews dealt with the same thing back in 1400 B.C. And the first century Jewish Christians that the author is writing to in 65 A.D. dealt with the same thing. And we do today. Across every generation, there is tendency to neglect that which is most important to our souls. And so we fight against apathy. We fight for Christian community. We fight for daily time with God. Not because we're supposed to. Not because we have to. But because we actually believe what we talked about last week, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And to have a rich an abundant life with Christ, both now and for eternity. We receive the love of God, and then we fight to maintain a rich connection with the God who has brought us to himself. Let's fight. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you that you have sent your Son for us, not by any good thing that we could ever do, but by your mercy you have saved us. I pray for those in attendance today who 
struggle with anxiety, who are regularly worrying about whether God would continue to accept them in spite of their present failure or their previous sin. I pray that they would hear the word of God today, that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. God, you give comfort to weary souls. Would you do so right now? Would you grant forgiveness to those who are worried? Would you forgive me, God? Would you simply forgive their sins and show them your presence in their lives? And for others who are just neglecting their spiritual lives, who perhaps have come in today and don't even know Christ, have never actually surrendered to him, but are wandering through life spiritually, I pray, Lord, for your conviction. It is so true. You comfort those of us who are afflicted, but you convict those of us who are overly comfortable. So Holy Spirit, I invite you to do your work on any of us who have rested on our laurels spiritually, who are overly comfortable today. We give ourselves to you. Perhaps today would be the day that you acknowledge that Christ is Lord and Savior, that he gave his all for you, and you would say, yes, I give you my heart in a real and genuine way. Today, God, I surrender to you. Or perhaps today would be the time that you say, I've, I've fallen back from my commitments. I have fallen out of spiritual community. I have not been fighting for time with God. And you would simply say right now, God, help me to fight. Help me to get back into spiritual community. Make that commitment today. Let us know and we'll do all that we can to help you find spiritual community again. Oh, Father, we love you. We thank you that you forgive us for every failure. You lift us again, and you bring us to the great throne room of Christ's grace, in whose name we pray. Amen.